I'm so grateful for all the lessons of my youth and then all the lessons of these past, whatever, 15 years since officially starting on my journey towards becoming a physician because it's only grown more expansive. It's only gotten bigger in scope. And even as it's gotten bigger in scope, it's still very much anchored and very much rooted in family and love of culture and love for God and sense of self. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. I had an amazing conversation with my friend Doc from college and I'd love to tell you a bit about him. So Wyvern Doc Oswad is a pediatrician, psychiatrist, activist, and aspiring author. He credits growing up in South Central LA as part of a large family for giving him his passion for serving the medically underserved. His work centers on youth violence prevention, caring for those who are transitioning from the criminal legal system, and restructuring emergency mental health access to feel more therapeutic. Doc received his bachelor's from Stanford University, go card, and his MD from the Charles Drew UCLA Medical Education Program. He is currently a resident at Brown University in the Pediatrics, Psychiatry, and Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Combined Program. Whew, that is a mouthful, and that is very impressive. And you can see the psychiatrist's mind coming in to a lot of the things that Doc had to say. So I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And in addition to that, he also spends his time writing science fiction and fantasy short stories, as well as creative nonfiction about the current medical system. When not working, he is a clumsy cyclist and the best amateur vegan chef you'll ever know. All right, we're gonna have to put him to the test with that. I haven't tried his vegan food yet, but I'd love to. So I have to tell you that I was blessed by this conversation. And I'm using the word blessed because it really felt spiritual. And I know that's not the theme of this podcast. It's really about careers. And that's certainly what we discuss. But it's just the energy that Doc brings to a conversation. That's just how he is. And I really think you're going to enjoy it. So let's get to it. I have a really good old friend of mine, Wyvern Oswald, also known as Doc. That's how I've always known him, joining us today. And I'm super excited. Welcome, Doc. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley, for inviting me and having me participate. I'm very excited for this opportunity. Good, good. I just feel like you're one of the wisest people that I know. So okay. I'm just really excited to learn more and learn more about your story. So I would love to just start really from the beginning. If you could just tell us about your childhood, about how people would describe you as a child. Yeah. How was young Doc? <laughs> oh, man. What a way to start. Wow. Now, I'm just going to say, too, that I appreciate you for wanting to begin in childhood and, and begin in youth, because I think one of the interesting things about you know, being a real particular, how do I even phrase this? Like, I don't know, sort of like our social circles, people who go on to certain like schools or in certain like so-called professions and things like that. You know, we always think of our origin story being 
at 18, I was a freshman at whatever college, right? right. Insert name of whatever, you know, fancy school or what have you, right? And thinking that's that, but, you know, the person who we arrived at at that point in our life was predicated on who we were beforehand. And frankly, I think we do a lot better. We serve ourselves better when we sort of remember who it is that we were from inception, the important rules and lessons and values instilled in us early on. And it can kind of help us cut through a lot of the noise of our present lives and our profession. But so I'll begin by saying that I am a very, very proud native Angelino, specifically yes. South LA, specifically the Crenshaw area. You know, at the time I was born, my mom was a single mom, but she later met and married my person who I call my dad when I was about one. She met him and they got married literally the day before my second birthday. So, and, you know, since, you know, he has been my dad with him, he, my, my brother, who is my dad's biological son, the two of us were one years old when my parents started dating. And then our younger siblings were born like a year and a half later. So, you know, my parents grew up kind of in the blended family, early 90s, South Los Angeles. My parents, God bless them, were like 30 years old with four children under 40. I don't know how anybody <laughs> does that. No, um, how? <laughs> how, Sway. But I think one of the, the biggest things that was a huge plus is that you know, I'm grateful that I had relationships growing up with three of my four grandparents, you know, my dad's mom, who's still living today, my, my granny Bertha, who's from Truthport, Louisiana. She raised six boys on her own in like Linwood, Compton area of LA. And then my grandmother, my mom's mom, and as well as my grandfather, who I call dad, the two of them were divorced, but still had a great relationship with each other. I mean, they raised their three kids in South LA. And then my grandmother, particularly my mom's mom, who I call my grandmommy, she had 12 siblings, 10 of which all lived until adulthood. All 10 of them moved from Arkansas to Los Angeles with my great grandparents. So I'm also privileged to have had relationships with my great grandparents who also moved from Arkansas with their 11 adult children Wait. to LA. Okay, I need to stop you right there because uh-huh. I did not know we had this overlap. So what? my great-grandma, who I uh-huh. call grandmommy too, was from Arkansas. And they yeah. moved to LA, but they moved before they had the kids. And then they have 10 girls Got here it. in wow. Um, Compton. Wow. Yeah. wow. See, that's, that's a great migration story that people yes. like... You know, and it's always interesting, too, because particularly like, yeah, those of us who are black in L.A., most of our roots come from Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, which is exactly my family. My dad's mom's from Louisiana. My mom's dad is from Texas. My mom's mom's from Arkansas. Right. So it's like so my great grandparents, all 11 of their children who were adults living in L.A. And, you know, so my grandmother had that support. So even though she was. Divorced from my grandfather, who I called dad, you know, she had all of her siblings. My mom grew up in, it's just like with her, literally her 51st cousins, like all in the same, everyone in the same five mile radius. So of course, like when I came along, me and my siblings came along, it like had double quadruple. So, you know, we had like, we had our, our first cousins, you know, my mom's 
brothers, children, but bigger than that, like we just had like all the different cousins and like no one, we don't do the whole like what first, you know, first cousin, second removed, all that. It's just like, you know, these are all just my cousins, my family. So I think that like, you know, to that point of like my parents having four kids under four, they also just had hell of family support. For me, having all that family support was a really, really big thing. I like, I still remember my great grandpa, like smoking on his cob pipe. And like, to me, that was just like the pinnacle of like maleness. It's just a smoke and a tobacco pipe sitting in a rocking chair. I'm just like, that's forever vibes that I'm trying to be on. I think that like, you know, I was the oldest of my siblings, but certainly like nowhere near the oldest in any of the generations of cousins. And so I was definitely like, you know, definitely like the bookish one, the one who like all the aunts and like my grandmothers and everyone always like laughed at. It's like everyone in my family calls me by my middle name, Nehemiah. So they're all like, you know, Nehemiah always carries a book around with him. And like, apparently I was a kid who like my grandmother had to like take me to a doctor's appointment or something like that. And then like, I threw a fit because she wouldn't let me carry a book. And she's like, the book is big as him. And like, you know, so that was just me definitely sort of the nerdy one bookish one not the athletic one at family functions i was the referee for the basketball games i didn't play in the basketball <laughs> games and you know i had my older male cousins and as like guys do you know it's just the whole familial rite of passage getting picked up beat up on and you know you learn to fight back and everything like that and then with my little boy cousins my older cousins wanted me to like you know like, you gotta rough them up you gotta beat them up and I was just you know Mr. Pacifist like no everyone let's play nice together mama so you know that's kind of always been me I think <laughs> I think a great part about it though is that like I feel like even with me like being sort of the bookish little I'm about to be the leader of the pack type i think that i never was like picked on or bullied really and maybe it is because i had so many cousins that nobody was really trying to like mess with us like that and maybe it's also just because like i don't ever think i ever saw those things as sort of like liabilities to me maybe a little bit in middle school i did but you know every middle school is a hot ass mess regardless um so so there's that but certainly kind of like by high school i was just kind of like confident and sort of who I am, who I was. And I think it also helped that like my parents were very much like black power type humans. Like we celebrate Kwanzaa and everything. So I think there's just like a perfect confluence of like lots of family, lots of deep spirituality and lots of like pride in like yourself as a black person. Yeah, a real sense of like belonging, a sense of where you came from that like kind of infused a lot of I don't know. It was definitely like a big backbone in my character. And I think the other backbone too in my character is also just sort of experiencing loss too. I know I mentioned my grandparents, my mom's parents. Neither of my mom's parents are still living. My mom's dad died when I was six. My mom's mom died when I was 12. It's very close to them. And I think particularly my mom's mom. That was, I was, I did, you know, I, I was the oldest in my fam of like my siblings and my parents did kind of rely on me a lot to help my grandmother. So learned a lot pretty early on about changing feedings and helping people <laughs> like, you know, my grandmother died from cancer, but she like had a hard time like walking towards the end and going towards the bathroom and things like that. And so, you know, I was 12 and did what I could to help out. You know, I get her up to kind of move around. I like learned how to do her oxygen tank, learned how to like make her meals and things like that. So 
you know, very early on, just like, you know, much more of a nurturer, caregiver type of person. And yeah, that's a lot of my early kind of scattershot versions of some early me, but yeah, not, not a, yeah. That no, that's, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful because now, now I'm seeing, seeing so much so of it come together. Like I didn't realize that your family had a very strong black power kind of roots. I yeah. thought that's something that happened in college. You went to classes and started to learn and became, you know, <laughs> more radicalized. Didn't know that that was from your upbringing. So that's yeah. amazing. Your spirituality, you brought that to Stanford. I saw that so much. We would look to you as like preacher doc as well. So I love that the caregiving and the pacifist in you, I'm seeing all of that today. And I am wondering, how does that connect to your mission to become a doctor? And the fact that I, when I was first introduced to you, your name was doc to me and I did not learn your name until a lot later. (laughs) I would say like the younger me was like really fascinated with like either being a doctor because I just thought science and people and stuff was cool. I mean, that's kind of what you did if you like science. And I was also like really interested in like writing, acting, like the more thespian artistic type stuff. And, you know, every good L.A. kid definitely had an agent. Well, I did at least um, like when I was in elementary Wait, school. you're right. <laughs> yeah. You are so right about that. I forgot. I had an agent. I did my one little commercial. Yeah. 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 Every L.A. kid, you know. So I definitely was that. But like, I remember like when my like acting career was starting a little take off, you know, like I had booked a little Pepsi print commercial and I was like trying to do a like actual video commercial to like be Master P and uh, <laughs> like young Master P and like a Pepsi ad that they were planning. My grandmother, that's when she got really, really sick. She died when I was in sixth grade. And I think from there, it kind of really solidified a lot of like strong interest in medicine as a career. And, and yeah, by the time I was deciding about high school, I was interested in going to King Drew because it's like this medicine and science magnet. But then I was also like, oh, well, like, but like, I don't want to just pigeonhole myself into just medicine and science. But, you know, I was really excited that it would be like a mostly black area. And then like my mom, she worked at the elementary school down the street so she could just drop me off. It was just like a lot of like convenience that was went into it. And I thank God routinely that I ended up going to King Drew instead of some other school. But Ooh, I'm really grateful I went to King Drew. But I will say more about that. Shout out to my high school. I really appreciate how radical King Drew was. I mean, it's a medicine and science magnet. And yes, it's like a really dynamic idea that you're going to teach black and brown kids about exposing them to science, exposing them to medicine and trying to help them become doctors or nurses or some form of healthcare professionals going forward. But I think even more so than like our sciences, because shout out to my science teachers. I love you guys. But like the real MVPs of King Drew were like, was our English department and our history department. Our English teachers, our history teachers, they were like situating the fact that you go to a high school that is named after Martin Luther King Jr. and Charles Richard Drew, two dynamic pioneers in Black history, one who's like a civil rights leader championing just the issues of our people, and one who's like a pioneer scientist who is just like the reason that we are able to store blood and be able to like keep people alive, right? So it's just like, here you guys are with this situation. Let's make you more than just doctors, more than just nurses, more than just healthcare professionals, public health officials. Let's make sure that y'all are like 
wise and informed. And, you know, I learned about health disparities when I was in 10th grade, you know, which is hell. I'm like, what? You got 10. And then I, and I was like hooked with it because like, as I'm learning about health disparities, it's making me realize like, okay, my grandmother who like had to do double mastectomy and like all these things, she was a poor black woman who like was living her life on like social security and disability and her access to doctors, even if she had like her primary care doctor, Dr. Mays, someone I still remember to this day, was a phenomenal Black man. And that's about it for all of her like care, right? And then you think about like my cousin and him being murdered. It's just like, what are all the different things that lead to somebody being shot down in the street? You know, these are all health disparities. So it's just like, I'm like spending my time as a high school student learning about these things. I was like very grateful for my high school experience. So I loved hearing about Doc's high school experience. We talked about how it was very unique and how it gave him a strong foundation that really made him feel comfortable in his skin as a black man pursuing higher education. He saw so many upperclassmen at King Drew attend Stanford, and he was really proud to follow in their footsteps. He was especially excited because his best friend's older brother, Matt, was already at Stanford. Doc said everybody wanted to be like Matt. He was cool, super smart, warm, and as old folks would say, easy on the eyes. In addition to seeing a number of familiar faces when he stepped on Stanford's campus, Doc also carried this rich repository of knowledge about Black people, the history, the culture, and the injustices facing the community. Honestly, it was something that I envied. Having attended predominantly white institutions in the early 2000s, I was coming into Stanford with a colorblind approach to the world. I didn't get to unpack issues like health disparities, the wealth gap, and redlining until college. And I just thought, wow, King Drew, what a wonderfully unique experience. This strong foundation really helped Doc navigate some of the challenges he faced at Stanford. His first challenge, like many students, the science classes, especially the organic chemistry classes. I remember we called it OCHEM at Stanford and everyone talked about how rough it was. Like most colleges, the pool of pre-med students becomes much smaller by graduation. And Doc noticed that this had a disproportionate effect on black and brown students. He was disheartened by the fact that there was a lack of black students pursuing STEM at Stanford. And he also noticed that there was classism within the black community. He wanted to make a change. I've now experienced that like in the classroom, there's been a definite issue with helping us get to where we want to get to in terms of like succeeding. And from a outside the classroom and a cultural standpoint, our black community is affirming, but not entirely affirming if you aren't like an upper middle class black person. And like, these are two things that I'm like, all right, I actually hate this. There was like a point in junior year, I was like, I actually hate Stanford because like these things that when I was a freshman, I thought were like so awesome. I'm just like now an upperclassman, like blinders all the way you know, off and everything looks a mess. And so that kind of informed me to be like, all right, now that I'm a senior, how the hell am I going to try to change the narrative here? From the academic standpoint, I was like, this is happening to too many people. We have to do something different about this. So I approached at that time, the vice provost of undergraduate education at Stanford, Harry Elam, who's a black man. And I tell him about, I like organize a meeting for the BSU 
because he had just got appointed to that position to talk about like issues of like black students at Stanford. And like we spent the whole meeting talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but did not talk about that, which I knew there's hella data for. And then I was just like, you know, one thing before we end this meeting, we have to talk about this. And he was like, that's interesting. And he's like, we should continue talking about it. And then he put me in contact with Martha Sire, who is his associate vice provost. And everyone was like, we're really interested in this like leaky pipeline. We want to fix this. How do you feel about helping us fix this? And I was kind of like, I need a job. Right. So, you know, it took a little finessing, you know, it took a little finessing. But ultimately, that became my first job after college was to work at Stanford to help create what is now the Leland Scholars Program, which crazy enough this year, 2022, is our 10-year anniversary of LSP. Uh, so it's like this will be the 11th cohort on campus, but like it is bringing in first generation low income students. We started off with like people who had an interest in going into science. Now it's expanded where it's focusing on just like first gen low income students, bring them to college a little bit early and like putting in all that like kind of cultural, psychological, like you are great, you belong here. You don't have to like worry about not belonging here. And here are like the academic resources to help you succeed in classes. After making a positive impact through the Leland Scholars Program, Doc still had dreams of his own. He wanted to become a doctor. In order to get his grades up and become a competitive medical school applicant, he did a post back at UC San Diego. Although he received a full scholarship, he couldn't afford room and board. He made a two-hour commute from his parents' home to San Diego four times a week for an entire year. Yes, the dedication. Fortunately, Doc's hard work paid off and he attended UCLA Medical School. We talk a bit about this experience. By the time I was in medical school, very much interested in Mr. Health Disparities, really like the murders that I went through, like experienced my cousin and my friend, it really like put in my mind that like I was interested in not just physical health anymore, but mental health and thinking a lot about trauma. So I was just like super duper convinced and dedicated that I wanted to not just be an adolescent pediatrician, but I also wanted to be an adolescent psychiatrist. So I wanted to be what is called triple board trained, which is pediatric psychiatry and child psychiatry. Had that thought when I was a first year med student. Grateful to God that I'm currently in residency to do that very thing. But in medical school, I think the most informative and important thing that happened is just realizing you know, I thought that a lot of my trials and tribulations were behind me, had a hell of a hard time getting through college, had to do the post-bac, had to do all that commuting to do my post-bac. But I was like, finally, thank God I'm in medical school. My first two years of medical school went off without a hitch. I was just like, didn't have any of those same academic troubles that like kind of plagued me as a first and second year college student. And then I felt step one, which is our United States medical licensing exam, which is like, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of med students think of that as a death blow, like for context for folks who are not in medicine, passing step one is like sort of like the gateway point to which specialty you're going to go into, like certain specialties, if you want to like go into neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, like neurology, dermatology, like these real competitive subspecialties, they won't even look at you if you get like less than a certain USMLE step one score. And then so to not pass it just becomes like a big scarlet F. A lot of residencies are going to like 
have on you. So needless to say, I was like really devastated that that happened. But the bigger devastation was like I had to retake the shit. Not only did I have to like stop in the middle of my year of taking my third year requirements, for those who are not in medicine, you know, our first two years of medical school are classroom based. And then our second two years are clinically based. And then your third year, you're doing mandatory clinical rotations. So you're going through surgery, OBGYN, pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine, psychiatry, neurology, all the things that one person needs to be exposed to in order to be considered a fully rounded physician. And also it's an important year because it helps those who might not yet know exactly what they want to go into. They can sort of get a feel for everything. But that year is so regimented and so structured. If you miss any time from it, it can potentially delay not just you going on to your fourth year, but potentially even delay your graduation. So like the stakes were pretty big of me having to take that time away. I had to take away two rotations. So that was my OBGYN and pediatric rotations, which totaled out for 12 weeks. So three months I had to take off of my third year. To thus delaying the start of my fourth year. I'm grateful in a lot of ways that things that were in my favor was that I already knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do mental health and pediatrics. And I was also grateful that one thing that worked in my favor is that I had done so well in my first two years of med school, such the point that here I was like the kid who like didn't do so hot as a pre-med in college comes into med school and is otherwise crushing it and getting recognized by the administration of my school, getting awarded with two national honors, one from the American Medical Association, one from the Association of American Medical Colleges, and being like the recipients of these big prestigious, so-called prestigious awards. And then also being the guy who fell step one, like it brought in a lot of the old feelings of like, you know, the imposter syndrome stuff that I like have worked so hard to like teach my like my students in my Leland Scholars program, that job that I had when I first came out of college. Like I've been teaching them all about don't fall into imposter syndrome and stuff. And then here I go. I fell this test and I'm like, well, damn, like it's starting to creep back. So the three months that I took off. One of my deans at my medical school who, you know, shout outs to like black women, right? Because I talked about Jan Marie Bark Alexander and I talked about my high school college counselor, Lisa Golden. But like, once again, dynamic black woman in this space that I'm in now in medical school, Daphne Calmes, who was just like, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you pass this test and you get back on track. We want you to graduate with your class in fourth year. We're not delaying your graduation. Woo, woo, woo. She and another Black woman, Deborah Prothros did, they made financial arrangements so that I would go to an intensive boot camp to study for step one. But the problem is it was not in LA. It was in the middle of you know, it's disrespectful to call um, Champagne, Illinois, Podunk, nowhere, but that's how it felt. Just in the middle of the cornfields um, <laughs> and just like way out there in the boonies. But I went out there for those three months to work on and study and prepare for step one. And that stuff happened. I worked on, I studied and I prepared for step one. But then also one of the worst things that has quite frankly, ever occurred in my life. You know, I've mentioned to you all in the previous installment about how loss has been a big factor in my life and how it's shaped a lot of decision points that I've made and things like that. And that time away in Illinois, my good friend, Matt Reed, the one who I like, 
you know, emulated so much and wanted to, you know, even choose my college based off of him. He's my best friend's oldest brother, just like the man. He passed away unexpectedly. He was two months away from turning 31, one month away from getting married. So that was like such a huge blow. And I think one of the biggest things about it was the fact that I was like, there's all these stakes study for step one. You have to, you already failed in once. You have to like study again and of a way like Milan, Matt's brother called me. Milan at the time was living in Salt Lake city. And he called me. He was like, Hey, I'm gonna be in LA and a little bit. Can you get me from the airport? Matt's not doing well. He's in the hospital. And he actually texted me this. And then I was like, actually, I told my friends that I didn't pass up one, but I hadn't told them that I got like shipped out to the middle of the country to study for it. I was kind of ashamed by that. And so like Milan telling me that he's coming to LA emergently because his brother's in the hospital was like, wait, what's happening? And so I ended up calling Justin and Catherine, Justin's wife, when they really sort of filled me in about how things were looking not great. And in my whole mind, when I left to go to Illinois, the whole thing was like, be done with the test, study and be done with the test in enough time to make it back to LA for Matt's wedding. And instead I was coming back to LA for Matt's funeral, which was a mess. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm so sorry. Understandably, this was an incredibly challenging time for Doc. Matt's family asked Doc to do the eulogy. He said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done in life, you know, eulogizing a friend. But I understood why they asked him to do it. Doc has a way with words. He has a spiritual compass and wisdom that many of us in college admired. We talked about what he learned from this loss. Losing Matt in terms of the different losses I've had in my life was certainly the most seminal in so many ways because, you know, I think I was starting in a lot of ways to lose myself in medicine. Having a career in medicine was so much, you know, you guys heard me talk about how like, you know, I really like saw value in it, like in being a caretaker because of like losing my grandmother and learning about health disparities, like really like shaped me and thinking like this is the great way to like take care of issues for black people while being a doctor. And, you know, and this is like such a part of my narrative. And then I get into medical school and things are fine and things are good, but medicine has a very particular way. It's very regimented. It very much so wants you to like be a certain type of person. And, you know, losing him was a big wake up call because it's just like, I have entered into a machine that is going to churn me out and make me a doctor. And what I could lose in that process is like, the connection that I have to family that's been super important to me all along, the like the value and like taking care of and caring for Black people in like unapologetic ways and ways that are beyond just what you do in a clinical setting. And for the duration of my third year of medical school and into my fourth year, I was just like, yeah, I was just like, I don't have time to sort of play games with people our mince words, not saying I became rude or anything, but, you know, it really helped me kind of cut to the heart of, of the issue. It's just like, are the things that we're doing helping somebody's life better? Are the things that we're doing really helping someone's mother, father, brother, sister, lover, you know, are there bigger structural things that we are not doing 
that are contributing to these issues, right? And whatever that might be, that's where my post needs to be. That's where my attention is. That's where my heart is, right? Um, one thing that I, you know, quote in the Bible, but spoke at Matt's funeral about is like, it's like, you know, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. And so I had to like really figure out and evaluate for myself where my heart is, my treasure will be also. So yeah, path step one, the second time around, praise God. Yeah. Um, Congratulations, yeah, by the way. Yeah. After we talked about Doc's ability to overcome yet another hurdle, he started to reflect on his journey. It's been a little over four years since we lost Matt and since the whole step one debacle. And, you know, now I have since gotten into residency at Brown, which is in Rhode Island. Hence, I am in the middle of a blizzard presently, leaving my very California lifestyle behind, which I make it very clear to everybody that I'm a Californian and I belong there. And when I'm done with my time in Providence, which I do love Providence. When I'm done with my time in Providence, I'm going back, man. New England, can they can have this. But it's just like I get to do the stuff that like 18 year old me who arrived at Stanford University, who was just like going to be a so-called like just an adolescent pediatrician and focuses on health disparities. That's kind of true. Like I did major in home bio, but I've also just allowed myself to expand. Like I didn't just major in home bio. I also minored in African-American studies. Right. Like I didn't just go on to medical school. I had like a little wayward journey in between that allowed me to like start a brand new program at Stanford that's now in its 10th year. And just last night I had a kid who's now Stanford alum, but class of 17. So six years younger than me and talking to me and like thanking me for being a part of founding that program. Something that like had an impact on his own college experience. Right. And, um, and I've had this experience, like I'm not just an adolescent pediatrician, but I'm also an adolescent psychiatrist. And I'm able to like weave all these narratives or blend all these passions kind of into one being and recognizing that, I mean, I am just one person, but just meaning that like I, my life doesn't have to sort of be like this very clear cut picture that I thought I was going to be at 18 years old when I arrived to Stanford, you know, Mr. Black Power. I'm so grateful for all the lessons of my youth and then all the lessons of these past, whatever, 15 years since officially starting on my journey towards becoming a physician because it's only grown more expansive. It's only gotten bigger in scope. And even as it's gotten bigger in scope, it's still very much anchored and very much rooted in family and love of culture and love for God and sense of self. So like, you know, I feel in place. I feel rooted. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week. Mm-hmm.